This is episode 49 of the Immunology Podcast, Viruses and Aging with Dr. Clovis Palmer. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have a great episode with Dr. Clovis Palmer from Tulane University here to talk about his research on HIV, long COVID, and aging in non-human primates. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... This is your bi-monthly reminder that Immunology 2023 is taking place in Washington, D.C. from May 11th to 15th. For those attending, be sure to drop by the Exhibitor Hall to attend Exhibitor Workshops and Poster Sessions and to visit with leading scientific companies and organizations, including the Immunology Podcast, which is us. Please visit www.immunology2023.org for more information. Well, hello there. Hello, Jason. I was thinking of, of something cool that we could talk about today, but to be honest, I'm kind of out of ideas. Uh, but I did notice that people nowadays on Twitter, I, you know, I'm in Twitter way too much, uh, they are being very interesting uh through like using chat uh, this 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 ai thing chat uh, gpt to to just ask random stuff so i was thinking we could ask it to help us establish an interesting conversation for today because i really have nothing all right all right well so i put in a chat gpt could you recommend a conversation starter for the immunology podcast okay <laughs> what did it say so it said here, sure is it, here's a conversation starter. What recent advances in immunology research have you found most exciting or promising? How do you see these developments impacting the field in the near future? I think I got to go more general. Mm, yeah, I mean, also that's basically uh, our roundup. Okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate this over. So, so actually, this is a good one. All right. How did you okay. end up in immunology to begin with, Brenda? <gasps> oh, well, that's uh, well, that's not a big story, actually. Um, I attended a summer school. Uh, I got a scholarship to go to Germany for a summer school in immunology. That was like, because I knew someone that was there and he kind of sent it my way. I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. I can go to Germany for it. And then it was a immunology summer school. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And then uh, I made some contacts. And then that's how I got my PhD position back in Germany, where I did the summer school. Well, see, there you go. Insights and conversation were brought to you by ChatGPT. Thank you very much. I guess we can move on to the papers here. Although I have to say, I've actually used ChatGPT to do some preliminary research to try to figure out what I should be searching in PubMed for because I couldn't find it through normal means. I, I, I'm a little bit on the fence about that because it has does have the habit of making up complete papers, oh, authors and PubMed IDs. just used it to get some search terms to then put in. So I'm like trying to get the right information that okay. I can go to the primary sources with because I was having trouble like keying in on something I can't disclose. Um, it's all work. You should make a little tutorial about that. That's very yeah, interesting. Like, like it, it basically, I'm like, look, I need like the robot overlords of the world to give me some synthesized information that I can go figure out the details of because I'm having trouble pulling it myself. And that worked pretty well. Okay. I know people that are like best friends with with with, with the AI. So they're like, he has it open all the time and just like constantly <laughs> comes back and forth that's, and text editing stuff like that. That's like Skynet. Yeah. 
you know, and we all know what happened with Skynet where it hijacked the world. But I'm going to talk to you today. Segue. Oh, my God. Bacteria hijacking you. Right. So the title of this paper is Bacteria Hijack Meningeal Neuroimmune Access to Facilitate Brain Invasion. Oh, ominous. Okay. There you go. First author is Felipe A. Pinho Ribeiro. Last author is Isaac M. Chui. Um, it's in Nature right now, came out in March 1st of this year. All right. So I'm going to try to keep this sort and sweet. Uh, the paper looks at how with meningitis, that's when bacteria infect your meninges, which are the membranes around your brain, and eventually you brain yourself, and then you die. Or get really sick and need antibiotics, otherwise you would die. Um, it's pretty nasty. There's two um, bacteria that are main causes of what they study here. They're both Streptococcus, Streptomoniae, and uh, Strep agalactosia. Mostly they look at Streptomoniae because of how it works. And what they find is that this bacteria um, activates a neuropeptide um, called calcitonin gene-related peptide C. GRP. This is one of those names that like probably should be changed, but isn't because of, you know, how it was discovered versus what is now. Anyway, the way this works is this gene, this peptide is known to be a nociceptive neurotransmitter, right? So it, when it's released, causes you to feel pain. And so what they show here is that these and, and they and they by the way they do this with a bunch of tissue specific knockouts um of course because who doesn't do that these days but they show that the way the bacteria invade generally right it gets in your blood goes up in your meninges and then it bypasses eventually the blood brain barrier which isn't really a wall it's like some transmembrane you know some some actual membranes that are hard to bypass but obviously blood gets to your brain so bacteria can and a lot of immune cells and other things in there so what they demonstrate is that if you get rid of the nociceptive pathway the bacteria do not cause as much disease they don't nearly have the same level of invasion and then they show that secondarily it is neuronally mediated but then they show that it's an immune mechanism so they show that what's happening is that when the these bacteria induce the release of that peptide, the, the CGRP peptide, that causes pain signaling. But what that does is that pain signaling affects the immune system. Um, and that immune system response is a suppressive response. So it binds... Um, to uh, the ramp one plus the other receptor to form a complex and mice without the ramp one receptor don't have this they they don't they respond like um they, they have a deep they, they don't respond to the neuropeptide right so they're not gonna when there's pain they don't so they'll they'll clear it faster essentially because there's no pain response in this site and they do the same thing with antagonists of the signaling so they show several ways that it's ramp one and then they, they dive into, well, how is RAMP1 controlling immune cells? Um, and they show that it's myeloid cells that are responsible. And that essentially, um, the RAMP1 signaling leads to a suppressive phenotype in myeloid cells, and particularly macrophages. 
And by eliminating either the receptor or blocking it or ramp one or the peptide itself being produced, you basically have increased bacterial clearance and the macrophages suppress more cytokines and chemokines. And those chemokines will pull in the rest of the immune system, neutrophils, monocytes. And so if you ablate that, you then recapitulate the standard phenotype. So if you deplete these meningeal macrophages, then it works like if you did have a pain response or you have worse clearance. So it's a pretty neat setup. Um, and they basically show that this ramp one regulates the macrophages. So in the end, bacteria lead to pain in the brain. Pain in the brain leads to signaling cascade which tells the immunes, which, which basically tells that not only is this pain signaling occurring, but the same pain a ligand exists on immune cells, in particular macrophages, and activating that leads to suppressive phenotype. And just so you know, this is also true of opioid receptors. So morphine and that whole class, chronic administration of opioid receptors is immunosuppressive through direct activation of the opioid receptors on immune cells. That's kind of terrifying. So this bacteria not only makes it hurt more, but then it also like it acts you better because of this. Sounds like a complete hijacking. Oh, makes me, makes me feel queasy, like thinking about it, getting like meningi men meningitis in my brain. Ugh. But I mean, so... When they then they say when they blockade uh, ramp one, is this like is there a kind of some um, approved medication or is there any like therapeutic? Um... There are some small molecules that they used, and so they maybe basically, especially since it's an acute problem, that's more amiable than like permanent ramp one blockade. Yeah. yeah. So they suggest that this could be a therapeutic option. They don't really simply because we can clear bacterial meningitis with antibiotics. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, on the on the one hand, isn't it also on the yeah, isn't it good to not have too much inflammation if you can get rid of the bacteria directly with antibiotics? Isn't isn't it better to have this anti-inflammatory macrophages there? Yeah, to keep things more uh, under control. So I think that's a difficulty, right? Would you want to alter this pathway or not? And I don't know. If, that gets tough, right? Because yeah. inflammation that also kills you. It's like your body doesn't clear it well enough. So I think in people whose immune system is kind of sucky, it could make sense to turn it on. But yeah. some people you wouldn't want to dampen it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I have a really cool paper that I want to talk okay. about. Is this and... cool as hijacking? Are you going to hijack my brain with a cool well, paper? Well, no, but we can say is we're synthetically hijacking the T cells with novel car constructs that were never seen before. Novel car constructs. All right. I really like this. I was really happy when I saw this paper um, because I actually had been following the story first. Like I, I saw this story presented at a conference like um, early last year. Um, and I thought it was really cool. And I was wondering when it was going to come out and it took some time, but it is out. So this uh, paper is called Co-opting. So I guess in a way it's hijacking. Co-opting signaling molecules uh, enables logic gate control of CAR T cells and was published in Nature on the 8th of March. Uh, first author, Adian uh, Towsley, 
from the lab of Roby uh, Meissner at uh, Stanford University. So I saw uh, uh, Robbie Meissner presenting this uh, conference in last May here in, uh, in Germany. So I basically the story is focuses around a rethinking what kind of signaling domains we use for car constructs. Because the, the standard car uh, that has been kind of done since 30 years uh, basically consists on a antibody uh, uh, bindings, so an antibody, uh, the um, short chain, the short chain variable chain, the one that actually binds to the antigen, uh, together with a transmembrane domain, and then some signaling in the in the form of a CD3 zeta domain, which is uh, you know, part of the natural uh, naturally occurring TCR uh, complex, and a costumulatory domain, usually either a um, CD28 or a uh, 41BB intracellular uh, domains. And this is basically uh, the most popular way of making cars. And those are the cars that are now in the clinic and are being used for clinical trials in general. So um, the issues with cars, are, cars are really great and they have advanced our uh, self-therapy possibilities enormously. Um, and they're great for certain leukemias nowadays you know, as, a, as a treatment. But they have certain uh, deficiencies amongst them, the fact that there's a lot of often uh, kind of tonic signaling that negatively affects their, their longevity or that results in, a, in an unwanted uh, activation. And this is all very problematic when you want to go move away from CD19-specific cars to other targets, particularly in solid tumors or things like that, in which it's really hard to find a single membrane like extracellularly expressed target that you can use for identifying the cancer cells. So you want to have on the one hand a, me a, a mechanism or a, a, a platform that is, has less kind of baseline activation and also that has the possibility of being more selective uh, also maybe by having multiple being depending on the expression of more than one antigen on the surface. And I think this is the idea that they came into this, this work and they started looking at other components of the TCR signaling pathway and the TCR, comp uh, the TCR signaling complex and seeing how they were a part, how, how, whether they had any potential as a signaling domain for a car. So they do some kind of initial experiments in which they, they identify which parts of the, of the TCR complex are kind of really crucial for signaling. This is very kind of very standard, but I think what is really interesting is that when they they do an experiment, in which they take members some of these proteins that are actually cytosolic, they have no, they're not membrane bound, but they kind of make them into a car. They use it, uh, uh, transmembrane domains from from somewhere else, and they kind of uh, attach these signaling uh, molecules uh, in this in the car, and they so they have to replace the CDR uh, the CD three uh, zeta domain. And then they see whether this works, whether by having one of these molecules as a signaling domain can replace CD3. And in fact, they are quite surprised that you actually can. And one of the molecules that really caught, catches their attention is ZAP17, which is uh, one of the, uh, it, it's, it's a molecule that it's uh, very closely involved in the recruitment of several um kind of uh, activate uh, there were other molecules of the TCR uh, signaling pathway 
to where the TCR is actually is. So sub 70s, sub 70, down when, when the activation of TCR occurs, sub 70 is a uh, is a kinase that has the ability to phosphorylate two particular proteins called LAT and SLP76. Uh, and these two molecules uh, form a scaffold that bind another that allows another protein P PLC gamma to uh, to kind of make a complex with them. And this is one of the initial steps of TCR signaling, and this kind of activates a lot of downstream uh, signaling from that. So they look into sub seventy, and they they're surprised and they're uh, that they can actually use this to replace CD three. And then they focus on what, what I just mentioned, that is the actual function of sub-70. And they think, what about what happens downstream of sub-70? It's sub-70 is actually allowing this, this uh, interaction between LAT and SLP76 to happen. What if we just use this for a kind of Boolean gating situation in which we have two different cars that are recognizing two different, anti uh, two different antigens on the, on the tumor surface? And then only by proximity do these two domains find each other. And that's basically what they do. And there's a lot of optimization uh, because and initially they, they find that they have a lot of um, base, baseline signaling when they do this. So they have to kind of start working on, on ways to prevent unspecific interactions between these two car constructs. They also need to find a way of preventing that uh, that this these two domains allow the binding kind of of, of PLC gamma uh, independently of signaling, um, and they do this by generating a little, several different mutants in which they they prevent interactions. It's very interesting how they do. So I'm not going to go into the details because I think it's a lot, but it's really cool to see how they they clearly were thinking a lot about this and they were thinking about the biology and the structure of these proteins. But kind of long story short, what they do is they show that by taking both LAT on the one hand and SLP76 SLP on the other hand and uh, making them into two different cars, they can uh, generate a construct, uh, a system in which only upon co-expression of two different, of these two different car um targets for example they made the example with a cd19 and her2 and only upon co-expression does this t uh, cars uh, signal and they initiate t cell activation and this is really cool because this seems to really be the first model of true kind of and gating that they are because they're having other other uh, other types of of car constructs or other synthetic constructs but I think this is really, really cool because it really allows for much more specificity uh, on this recognition uh, of, of two different antigens on a tumor. So I was really happy to see this. Uh, they call this system a li the link system. Um, and I think they're really going to try to, to push it maybe for, for, I think it's very promising for, for CAR T-cell therapy. Um, and I was really happy to see this published after Quite a long time. They had a, quite a long revision, and um, so I kudos to the to the authors. Do you think they're going to make a company? I wonder. I mean, they all do, don't they? So I mean, there is Stanford after all. So there's definitely oh. options. Oh yeah, that's already happened. They're in stealth mode. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they must have a patent in this. 
probably half the reason there is a delay in publication. Yeah, that's actually quite likely. I also want to say they had such beautiful illustrations for all the like the the, the the proteins and all the different car constructs. So they also like I, I'm pretty sure they use some like professional illustrators here. Jazz up that paper. You can even do videos now and get people to do video models of your thing. All right. I have no segue for this one. Um, I guess like the like their company is incubating, let's talk about germinal centers. <laughs> okay. Sure. Go. Yeah. Go for it. All right. <laughs> so um, it's called apoptotic cell fragments locally activate tingible body macrophages in the germinal center. Um, Abigail C. Grootveld is the first author. Tri Gong Fan is the last author. It's in Cell. It came out March 2nd. So for those who don't know, which included me, there's something called the tingible body macrophage or a TBM that exists in your, um, fall, your lymph follicles. And we knew that based on histology and we know that they're there and we know that they tend to... Um, have apoptotic cells in them, we think. And they then they verify here that there is apoptotic cell fragments in them. But that's all we really knew what they were doing. And they kind of established the mechanism what these cells do. So if we think about a germinal center and a follicle, right, you're going under massive B cell selection and death. Um, so these are the cells responsible for grabbing all those cell fragments up and processing them down, if that makes sense. So what they show, and so their job is to clear apoptotic debris and prevent antibody-mediated autoimmune diseases because it doesn't help if the B cell undergoes apoptosis, if its fragments spew everywhere and generate antibodies on other cells. You've got to, you got to um, you know, clean that mess up, as it were, right? So what they show here is that one, these cells are essentially um, tissue resonant macrophages of the lymph tissue. And so they do some lineage tracing and some ablation and some photoactivation and show these suckers are here the whole time. They'll reconstitute from immune cells, but they sit, sit there. And unlike other, some other tissue resonant macrophages um, in immune tissues, this uh, receptor, the C CSFR, CSF1R, if you, if you blockade that, those cells go away. These do not. And so then using, and, and this paper is beautiful with a bunch of images and a bunch of videos, and they do things like two-photon microscopy, and they will come in and activate by light to you know label something or they'll do a tamoxifen induced system so they do a bunch of different types of tracing and everything but they show these cells basically sit here sit here all the dang time when they're and they're evenly distributed they actually go into some math early on saying well why would you evenly distribute and not have them wandering around well they show based on the distribution density they're at which is less than what you'd expect randomly but they're even right they're in an actual lattice type of network with these giant appendages, the tangible bodies out, the appendages move around and search for things, but the cell does not. And that actually captures and clears more apoptotic debris than the cells wandering around. Because 
at the if it was very rare fragments, then active hunting would be better. And they do all this mathematical modeling to show that. But they show instead that um, how it ends up working is that it just creates a network, like a mesh network, and that captures everything. So, and so it's more efficient. So they explain that. And then they show that in these cells is apoptotic B cells. They'll induce apoptosis in B cells with a marker uh, to kill the cells. And they find the fragments, including the DNA and the markers, in these macrophages showing that it's getting cleared. And so apoptosis itself, since these fragments, causes their maturation. But they come from this precursor that's resistant to this blockade under like other um, immune cell and tissue resident macrophages. So that, that's what I got for you. It's apparently a follicular cell tissue resonant macrophage that is a hungry, hungry hippo that gobbles up apoptotic cell debris to prevent autoimmunity. But they do, they, they're lazy about it. Well, yes and no. They're all stationary <laughs> and they wave their arms. So their arms are moving, <laughs> but their bodies are not moving. So they're wiggling in place. So sorry, our dear listeners, uh, Jason is imitating, uh, is doing a representation of what he thinks the macrophages are yes, doing. Yes, I am absolutely wiggling my <laughs> arms right now. She can't see my feet, but they were wiggling too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're working smart and they're working hard. Look, like, you, you, you got to be smart and not just working hard in this day and age. Okay. None okay. of us are getting younger. Entropy is real and we're all just rusting. <laughs> all right. 40, Thank yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nothing matters anymore. Nihilism. Should we make become the nihilism podcast then? No, no, no. I'm just saying we're all going through, you know, slow oxygen death through rusting. And so as a result, smarter is better than harder because you can't work harder all the time. Your body won't let you. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I have a quick question, and this is probably because I'm not a, a native speaker. What's so what does tangible mean? Oh, God. Is that an English word I never heard? It is. So actually, it comes from the fact that it comes from histology. So tingible, apparently, according, according to Wiktionary, I just pulled it up, um, means able to be stained. And so these were identified on histology as having a unique staining pattern. Oh. Where they, like, move out. Okay. It's found in germinal centers and contains phagocytosed apoptotic cells, which is known as tangible bodies, stainable bodies. Okay. So that's right. the shape and feature that they see on histology from the word tangible, which apparently means like tintable. Tintable. All right. I, you got to love these old uh, nomenclatures that don't really make sense anymore, but they're just... Basophilic, eosinophilic, right? Like exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. Hematoxylin. But you don't, say, you don't say hematoxophilic, you say basophilic and eosinophilic. But ESN is the dye, and anyway, anyway, yeah. Names. What's in the name? Anyway, so let's just finish our conversation for today. Uh, I want to talk about a, little, a nice little story um, that I taught me something I didn't know. Uh, it's always really nice. I mean, most of these papers do, but this is something I never really thought too much about. So I thought it was, I wanted to share it with you. We might know it already, but who knows? So this paper is called Autoimmunity in Down Syndrome via Cytokine CD4 T cells and CD11 C positive B cells. And it's kind of a descriptive uh, paper, I have to admit. On the one hand, it's nice. On the other hand, it feels like the story is not completely finished, but um, it does teach me something new. 
First author, Luis uh, Mao uh, from the lab of Susan Vojunovic, uh, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, um, publishing Nature. And as the title suggests, they're basically looking into the immune dysregulation that is, I didn't know, characteristic of patients uh, with Down syndrome. And so to get kind of the, the facts, the facts, facts straight. Um, Down syndrome, as as we all know, it has a, as it means a trisomy of the chromosome twenty one, and is actually fairly common. One in seven hundred newborn babies in the U.S. are uh, diagnosed with this condition. And among the things that this this uh, this condition entails are the fact that Down patient Down syndrome patients have an increased risk of severe infectious disease and also has also have higher incidence of autoimmunity uh, amongst which thyroiditis, celiac disease, alopecia, and diabetes are more common than in the general population. And it is not clear exactly where this comes from. It is known that some immune, like some obvious suspects are uh, found in chromosome 21 uh, such as uh, subunits of the interferon of interferon receptors uh, and IRA are expressed in this chromosome, so maybe this is part of the is, is partly guiding this dysregulation. Um, and amongst other things, patients when you when you look at the the the, the, the immune populations, um, these people also have low uh, B cell counts and um, increased apoptosis of B cells, and basically. Um, yeah, this general dysregulation of the uh, of immune markers. So what they did in this paper is I can they kind of took a step back and they looked closer into some of this dysregulation, and they're trying to make the point that Down syndrome is really uh, what they they call a uh, cytokinopathy, like this really like this a very strong element of cytokine dysregulation that really affects a lot of these events, particularly when it has to do with autoimmunity. Uh, and and B cell uh, abnormalities. So they they basically take a cytokine. Uh, I mean they they analyze cytokine levels in in many patients with Down syndrome, compare them with with, with uh, healthy controls, and they do see that um, that all that all patients have kind of increased levels of many pro-inflammatory cytokines, and many of them have cytokine levels that are comparable to acute infections like what they see in healthy patients that are infected with, with COVID. So they have some COVID patients as well. They're also looking to uh, Down syndrome patients uh, with COVID. And they seem to kind of, they make the point that there's like the basal cytokine levels in Down, in down uh, syndrome patients are kind of comparable to, to, to infected healthy donors. And they, they look a lot at the cytokines and the ones that really stand out are also very unsurprisingly for inflammation, IL-6, IL-1-alpha, IL and TNF-beta, TNF which I guess we don't hear so much about those ones, but I think IL-6 is probably the most interesting. And that this is really, that this seems to be stable. So they took, they take blood at uh, different times and they measure cytokine at different times and they, this, this uh, levels are stably high. And when they look at the immune cells uh, a little bit closer, 
again, they see also skewage of CD4 and CD8 cells towards more memory phenotypes of also fewer naive cell uh, frequencies. And interestingly, one of the uh, pathways that they see kind of basically uh, app-regulated is uh, STAT3, and they see kind of more baseline phosphorylation of STAT3. Uh, and this, they see that they can kind of abrogate this by JAG inhibitors, uh, and they kind of do some experiments and they conclude that mostly this is due to this increased IL-6, uh, 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 expression in the, in the, in the, in the serum. So it is kind of mostly driven by IL-6. And when they look into the B cells, and I think these are trying to connect a little bit into the high autoimmune disorder, uh, frequencies observing these patients. And they they show that there's a particular population of CD uh, CD eleven C positive B cells that uh, are increased in Down syndrome patients, and that this their presence is correlated with the IL six levels, and also by circulating uh, T follicular helper cells. And um, they kind of pinpoint at these cells as being. A one of the major sources of autoreactive uh, B cells that are observed in Down syndrome patients. So they are known CD11 C positive uh, B cells are known to differentiate into antibody. Um, so uh, differentiate kind of in a non-conventional way and to have an increased uh, chance of differentiating to auto uh, auto specific antibodies. And they do seem that uh, they they do. Seen in the results, they suggest that these patients, these these people, these cells are are increasingly uh, differentiating to plasmoblasts that generate a lot of uh, um, autoreactive uh, antibodies, and they are the ones driving a lot of the autoimmunity that they see in these patients. And so, I guess that this is basically the idea that they make. They want to connect. Although this does kind of the try try to connect these this regulated cytokine uh, milieu with this regulation of the B cell compartment and increased amount of plasma uh, cells, uh, plasma blasts, increased amount of uh, self-reactive uh, antibodies. Um, I have to say that I find that like I was a little bit disappointed because I thought there would be a little bit more about why is IL six upregulated? Why is IL six coming from? If this is really one of the main drivers of this uh, excessive B cell differentiation activation and, and and whatnot, but they don't really seem to to go into this because it's a, basically a fairly descriptive paper. But it taught me something because I was not aware of kind of the very strong uh, immune dysregulation that is seen in in, in Down syndrome patients. I think that they they make the point in the introduction is that now that a lot of the other issues that these patients have to uh, um, have to go through are better managed. This is when the, really this uh, immune this regulation starts becoming more and more uh, evident. Yeah, I guess it's you're, you're digging in on all the other things that are occurring, which is an interesting point. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I wish there was a little more mechanism too, but maybe we'll learn more in time. It's also complicated, right? Because it's such a it's a gene dose of all these different genes. So, on one hand, you know which genes it could be. But it's an entire chromosome worth. Yeah. So they say they. I think they say chromosome twenty one has two hundred genes. So not the smallest, but small enough. All right. 
Well, you know, as, as we know, the, the, you know, the, the poisons in the dose, right? And permanent genes are high. And we're going to be talking in a little bit with Dr. Palmer, who does a lot of animal work to understand just what those doses are. And if that's not a segue, I don't know what is. But if you're looking for a quick reference that you can hang on your lab wall, well, Stem Cell Technologies has various wall charts covering different immunological topics, including a snapshot of COVID-19, an overview of antigen processing and presentation, and more. Explore all of the immunology wall charts and order your free copy at stemcell.com slash immunology wall chart. We are talking today to Dr. Clovis Palmer. He's assistant professor at Tulane University School of Medical Sciences at Tulane National Primate Research Center. And he's going to talk today with us, I hope, about metabolism of the, in the immune system and the relationship between it and, for example, HIV infection. Uh, Dr. Palmer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Thank you for being here. All right. I, I had a little bit of time spent in immunometabolism land. So I guess I'll jump into it first. A lot of people know at least a little bit about immunotasm. What you eat affects your immune system, diet, stress, you know, metabolism, immune system affects function. But uh, to dive in tiny to your area of expertise, how does HIV screw all that up at a high level? Yes. So I, I first got into this field almost over 10 years ago um, before we actually have the name um, immunometabolism. And so um, it's, it's one of our pioneering areas in um, research that our lab is very um, happy about. And um, it was a, a curiosity question. Um, you know, we know that HIV um, affects immune cells and it causes depletion of CD4 T cells during infection in infected individuals. And so the question was, why are these CD4 T cells um, dying off? So I curiously thought that one of the reasons could be that these immune cells are unable to take up sufficient um, nutrients like glucose, and therefore they would um, die. So if you can't get enough energy to survive, you will eventually die just as humans. And so that was the, the first sort of theory I had. And so I applied for some grants and um, we were successful um, with that idea. And we investigated, you know, firstly, whether or not HIV impacts the way immune cells take up glucose. And to our surprise, our original hypothesis was wrong. In fact, we found that HIV infection actually causes immune cells to take up more glucose. Because, and it makes sense after a while when we think about it, because these cells become activated and in order to maintain their activated state, they need more energy. So therefore they take up more glucose to facilitate that process. And so that's what we basically found uh, is that in the context of HIV, there's increased glucose um, uptake, increased glucose um, metabolism via aerobic glycolysis, and less so of um, oxidative phosphorylation. So basically we saw a metabolic um, shift from, aerobic from oxidative phosphorylation towards aerobic glycolysis. And we think that these um, metabolites that are produced by aerobic glycolysis 
uh, a nutrient source for the substrate for the virus to replicate. So in, in effect, what the virus does is that it hijacks the metabolic processes of the cells in order to reproduce. I think it's very interesting to look into uh, T-cell metabolism in the context of viral infection, because I come more from the immunometabolism of T-cells or metabolism of T-cells in uh, cancer, for example, which we also know that many, many oftentimes the, the tumors generate a very disfavorable metabolic uh, environment. What are the what do you think are maybe the the points in common between T cells in, in the metabolism of T cells maybe in different contexts, not only viral infection, maybe other types of infection, maybe other types of immune responses that you um, that you see parallels. Yes, so I'm glad you raised that um, issue with the parallel between. Um, glucose metabolism in T cells and cancer, because in fact, when we look at it through the lens of um, metabolism, we know that cancer cells require more um, glucose, more nutrients in order to proliferate. And the same thing with immune cells as well. And so therefore, it, it, when we look at both cancer and immune cells, we found that there are increased level of aerobic glycolysis. And we say aerobic glycolysis because we still the cells are still exposed to physiological levels of oxygen, and so the cells still break down um, glucose to, to lactate, and so that's why we define it as aerobic glycolysis because it's in the presence of ox oxygen. And so, what's interesting with that similarity is that we have actually been trying to investigate whether or not we could use drugs that are being used for cancer research to help to tame the immune responses in, in like HIV, for example, and other infections that activate the immune response. And in fact, there are some studies um, using rapamycin that have been used in the context of HIV cure to see whether or not it would limit um, HIV replication in the reservoir. So looking at the context, of you know, HIV and cancer, we see that we can definitely utilize some of the tools that have been developed um, in both fields to answer um, you know, similar questions. Do we understand by which mechanism the viral infection is driving this metabolic rewiring of the cells? Yes, very good question. Again, when we say metabolic re rewiring, when we say metabolic rewiring, we tend to generally think of changes from oxidative phosphorylation towards glycolysis or vice versa. But you also have other important pathways such as um, glutamine metabolism and glutaminolysis that um, you know, it helps to drive the TCA cycle and oxidative phosphorylation in the event that oxidative um, phosphorylation or glycolysis becomes um, limited. And so the phenotype overall is similar in many um, instances, but the mechanisms are different. So for instance, we have seen that the transcription factor, if one alpha, which is a regulator of many of the glycolytic um, genes 
um, is associated with this metabolic reprogramming towards aerobic glycolysis in the context of HIV infection. So in fact, we collaborated with a group at the University of Buenos Aires, um, Dr. Matthias Otrowski and um, Dr. Gabriel Duet. And we found that if one alpha did drive the transcription and replication of HIV in culture. And we do know as well that it is associated, this if one alpha is also associated with uh, metabolic dysregulation in cancer cells as well. There are other um, factors like, like um, C, MIC, um, and mTOR pathway. And these pathways tend to um, cross talk with each other. And so what happened when you try to inhibit one of these pathways, the other pathways um, take over. And so what we are finding now, again, similar to cancer, in order to um, sort of tame the metabolic, um, the over-metabolic um, reactivity of immune cells, we need a combination approach. Um, and hence, um, your question is vital. I mean, we actually need to identify specifically what mechanism drive um, these processes in certain contexts. So there isn't a master transcription factor or something that HIV is producing, like some viruses do, that is, that's the straight hijacker that you can point to? So I think um, the entire, the whole process of the, the, the virus um, attaching itself to the cell surface membrane is sufficient enough to trigger the um, phosphorylation of um, mTOR um, intermediates. And so those intermediates or downstream uh, pathways are what drive the, the metabolic reprogramming in these cells. That's what we find. Some of the, the proteins as, as well, HIV proteins like NEF, have been, has been implicated in this process, but um, in our hands, we think that at least the, um, the, the, the trigger comes from binding to the cell surface and also the um, HIV DNA within the cells also um, trigger this metabolic um, response as well. Okay, and then I guess the last little bit before we kind of switch gears maybe, you had mentioned that you know when you started this, it was on the thought experiment of maybe something about the metabolism is causing the cells infected by HIV to die. Did you ever get to why HIV kills the T cells to begin with? We we didn't um, get to the bottom of it, but what we think um, happens is that again um, coming back on the the, the basic of the um, glycolysis is that. One of the end products of glycolysis is lactate. Um, and lactate has been, been shown to not only um, cause this dysfunction of immune cells, like CD8 T cells, but it can also um, cause the death of immune cells as well. And so we, we haven't you know, pieced it all together as yet, but we, we think that that's potentially um, one of the mechanisms. And also the fact that you are sort of shifting the bioenergetics from oxidative phosphorylation, which is the driver of um, ATP towards other biomolecules, I think you get what we call metabolic exhaustion. And in fact, we coined this term 
to um, define the process by which this metabolic shift causes a metabolic um, catastrophe in these cells. And so we, we think that there is some metabolic exhaustion that is occurring, not only in CD4 T cells that actually um, die, but also in um, CDA T cells and maybe NK cells, this uh, metabolic exhaustion could drive um, the exhaustion and senescence phenotype that we see in viral infections. Um, I think it's also interesting that you have some data, uh, maybe uh, from human uh, studies, which also correlate some polymorphisms in glut in glut uh, transporters, in glucose transporters. What what do you what does the human data tell you about the importance of glucose metabolism in HIV? Yeah. So it, it, that that paper was um, or that data that we um, published that was quite interesting because we we know that different um, people within the HIV uh, population they progress at a different rate and also their um, outcome, whether or not they respond well to therapy, um, it's quite a heterogeneous population. And therefore the question is, if this is happening at the biochemical level, there must be something that driving this at the um, genetic um, level as well. And so we wanted to find out whether or not there are some change, changes within the within specific genes metabolic genes that was associated with this uh, metabolic um, dysfunction. And so we looked at genes that regulate metabolism, such as um, those that encode for the glucose transporter one, which is a major glucose transporter on immune cells. And as you mentioned earlier, other key players in metabolism were mTOR and PI3 kinase pathway. And so we look for genes um, variation within these pathways that may um, identify patients who progress quickly or slower or not at all um, when they're infected with HIV. So to shift a little bit, and you know, we talked some about your existing work. I know you are now, we, we mentioned at the top of the hour, an assistant professor here. And uh, you also help lead uh, the primate center at Tulane. Um, yeah. So can you describe a bit about that primate research and the importance of it and what you're working towards now? And then maybe we can talk a little bit more deep dive about primate research as well. Yes. So one of the, so the, the advantage with our work is that we have focused a lot on um, human samples so in, at the Burnett Institute, we use patient samples predominantly and um, primary cell cultures. And so I, I think that's important because it's, it's easier to translate um, these findings um, to the bedside. So, so one of the reasons why I was very keen to come at the primate center was that it's, it was a great opportunity to translate some of these um, ideas into therapeutics. And so, again, we, we are collaborating with a group at Worcester Institute, Dr. Mohamed Abdel Mohsin. And uh, we found some fascinated, fascinating um, inf information looking at the 
metabolome profile of plasma in people living with HIV on therapy who um, came off treatment, what we call analytical treatment interruption. And the idea was to see um, whether or not we could use those metabolic um, profile to identify patients who would rebound um, quicker or later when they came off therapy. And um, we identified several metabolites within those pathway that, pathways that we described, um, glycolysis and oxfos, that were able to distinguish between persons who were able to delay HIV rebound of therapy and those who were early or quick um, rebounders um, of therapy. So we, we want to continue um, that work in non-human primates using the sieve model um, in, 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 in non-human primates here at the center. The other work that we are currently doing, um, like many other groups, is um, identifying sort of the, the, the metabolic aspects that surround um, long COVID. And at the moment, we are evaluating in some of our non-human primate models, whether or not um, we could, you know, compare the metabolic changes that happens in human, whether or not that is reflected in these human non-human primates. I guess the non-human primates models are a lot closer, right, than a mouse. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things that is becoming quite clear now is that even though mouse models are great, they are, you know, and they shed a lot of significant light into these metabolic processes, but there are also significant differences as well that need to be taken into consideration. And nowadays, I assume that it's getting harder and harder to perform research on non-primate uh, uh, animal models. What do you think? What do you think is the, the future of research in in this type of models? Because uh, I think there's going to be that push away from such uh, anthropomorphic uh, animals. Sometimes is, is it difficult to perform these kind of studies? Well, I, I don't think it's difficult is the correct word, but um, it's economically very challenging to conduct mm. um, these studies, especially in non-human primates. Um, it can cost up to 10,000 US dollars. It can cost up to 10,000 US dollars per year just to house um, a, a macaque, for example. And in order to get any significant data, you're gonna need seven, six, you know, non-human primates per group. So you can do the math. So it's quite costly. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you, you 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 mentioned this because I heard that the NIH is now changing its policy as to whether or not we can go straight into clinical trials in using drugs that haven't been tested in um, in mouse models. And so the question is, you know, whether or not we're going to move, you know, more into non-human primate model or we could just gonna go straight into human um, studies um, using drugs that may or may not be, you know, you know, 
properly approved. Yeah, I saw a bit of bit of mixed re- mixed responses to those news. Yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting discussion. Uh, what's the right way of doing? What do you think, Jason? Well, I was going to wade into some of the controversy I've seen with the animal models, which is actually a geopolitical one, which is my understanding is that a lot of the monkeys have been traditionally sourced from China and they're blocking the export of them now, which is having profound effects in pharmaceutical and other places that use them, essentially forcing the issue. As someone kind of on the inside, I don't know if you could um, provide a little insight, Dr. Palmer. Yes. So we, we have the permit, National Permit Center. We have quite a big um, colony of animals. And I have to say, one of the things that drew me here is really the way these animals are taken care of. Um, they are rigorously um, investigated for any you know, um, disease within the colony. They they have their own hospital. They have a you know non-human primate hospital here. They have um, people who you know go around check to see whether or not the animals are doing well, not only physically but emotionally. And so um, you know doing animals non-human animal non-human doing non-human primates studies here. Is 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 quite something um, you know interesting. The with regards to the availability of non-human primates because of the, the China issue, many of our primates um, are obtained from the Caribbean, and so while you know we do foresee some issues should that situation persist. We also have other alternatives, um, much closer within the region. And also we have a very good um, you know, primate um, colony here as well. Logistics must be quite challenging sometimes to keep up this type of research. Well, I hope that now that we your group that you get to to do really good could work and take advantage of these kind of kind of facilities, which are not that common. So I, uh, I, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think we're going to wrap up the conversation a little bit. But we like to ask our guests by the end of our, by the end of the talk a little bit of a question, maybe not necessarily uh, the, uh, related to their to their research. Um, so it, on that on that note, you are now you are now of course a biomedical researcher. Uh, if you were not a scientist, what what do you think you would like to do? Well, growing up in Jamaica and on a farm, my both my parents are farmers, and I, I just love plants. And so, I actually studied botany in university. So I have two degrees. I have a degree in biochemistry and degree in botany, and so. If I weren't in a lab, I'll definitely be on a farm. And um, perhaps I'll still be doing something sciences, maybe trying to um, you know, cross two or three different plants to come up with a new variety. I think I was born to be a scientist. So <laughs> even, if, even if I wasn't a quote-unquote scientist in a lab, I perhaps would be 
you know, doing something, you know, scientific anyway. Yeah. Well, I think I've heard similar re replies from other of our guests. So I think botanist or taking care of a wonderful garden has, yeah, has been exactly. heard before. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something there that something about the personality top driving the science, right? <laughs> and we have all the P studies, so I'm not really surprised, you know. You know, P genetics could be the next Mendel, you never know. No, in fact, I one of my projects back at University of West Indies, where I did my first degree, was to cross um, two mumbin plants. So I had a genetic um, lecturer from India, and he found this um, mutant yellow pod, yellow seed, mung bean um, in, on his farm in India. And he brought it back to the Caribbean, to Jamaica, and he asked whether or not I was interested in crossing that variety with the wild type, which was a black, black um, pod, big green seed. And um, over the holidays, I took those seeds to my father's um, farm, spent the entire summer doing the crosses and came up with um, some nice varieties of um, all different pods, colors and pods and different seeds. So that was my first taste of science. And um, I think it, 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 it sealed the deal for me. It, it seeded it within you as it were? Yeah. <laughs> Forgive the pun. <laughs> It's been a few weeks since I dropped one, so I, I had to. I, I, okay. I haven't hit my quota. We'll allow it. We'll allow it. <laughs> the first pun of the year. That's that's a great answer. I guess a scientist is always a scientist. Yep, I agree. <laughs> it's been wonderful talking to you, uh, Dr. Palmer. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yes, thank you very much. For being not, a here. not a problem. A pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com. If you have any feedback or if you would like to suggest a guest, we're always open for suggestions. See you next time.